Hey, Rick Clark here with Farm Green Podcast. Ah, this is, we started off with a great episode last week. We have a, oh my gosh, this is going to blow everybody's brains today. We've got the king of carbon today, Jerry Hatfield. Um, again, I want to reiterate about this podcast. This is, this is loose and relaxed and, and totally open and live for a reason because I want interaction from you the the listeners out there i don't care where you are in the world uh send your questions in they will get funneled to me and we will have a tremendous conversation with each and every guest that we have but this week is dr jerry hatfield retired usda ars plant physiologist and laboratory director for the national tilth laboratory currently consulting agricultural scientist and residing in the great state of Iowa. Jerry, thank you for being here. It is an honor for you to be on this show. And I'm going to ask the first question I'm going to ask every person that's on this show. What is on your mind right now, Jerry? Well, I'm going to start off with a quote, Rick. Uh, This comes from George Washington Carver in 1938. He said, whenever the soil is wasted, the people are wasted. Oh, boy. Poor soil produces only poor people, poor economically, poor spiritually and intellectually, poor physically. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about that quote the last couple days after I found it, thinking, what state are we in right now? And we're in a state in which we don't realize how fragile we're making our agricultural system. Mm-hmm. We are, we're only one drought away from a disaster. <laughs> we're only flood, one flood away from a disaster. Uh, the, the resilience in our soils, I think should scare everybody. Uh, we, we build our whole agricultural system now on a reliance on external inputs. Uh, and, you know, I've seen article after article about how expensive fertilizer is going to be and how expensive inputs are going to be uh, and, and all of this. And I get very worried about our capacity to, to feed the world. I think that we have the opportunity to do that, but I think we have to change our attitudes. And that quote from Washington Carver is because we need to rethink agriculture, not only for what we produce, but the quality of what we produce, looking at the, the, the quality of our grains, the quality of our fruits, the quality of our forages, you know, you, you see all that and, and while that impacts humankind in terms of nutrition and everything. So we've had a lot of interesting discussions over the past few weeks with uh, clinical nutritionists that have been looking at quality of foods and everything and their impact on diabetes and autism and and uh, obesity and all these other things I'm and so it really is a very complex world and agriculture is the, the center of that so that's what about and how do we begin to tackle this problem so that's that's what's keeping me awake at night yeah. <laughs> thinking about all of this and and what we can do about it uh, you know and so but being the eternal optimist that I am, <laughs> I think, you know, we have, we have opportunities and we had, we can solve this problem if we put our mind to it. Sure. We have the tools and the technology to do this. We just 
We just have to do it. Yep. Now, I want to let's stay right here for a moment. How far back in time do you think we've really started to notice these these health issues within the humans that you mentioned, diabetes, autism, um, you know, whatever the case may be? What are you seeing for a time window back? I, I think that's a time window of, of 20 years. I mean, I think if we'd plot out things like autism, I mean, we've seen an increase and expected the increase into the future. Uh, you know, I see, I hear more discussion. The diabetes has always been around, but it's been on a pretty small part of the population. Now it's becoming more commonplace. So I'd say in the last 20 years is probably when we've had that. Uh, so, so Jerry, do you think, do you think GMOs have anything to do with this? I don't know if, I think the whole agricultural complex, I, I don't think it just, uh, GMOs. Uh, I think that, uh, the, the things we put in the ground, pesticides uh, and all of this, you know, what is that linkage between environmental contaminants and, yeah. and human health? Uh, you know, I think that there, there should be some serious questions being raised about all the things that we put into the ground to control weeds and insects and what we put on crops to control diseases. You know, what impact is that having on food quality? uh and the transmission into into humans i hate to sound like an alarmist but i think we need to face some realization of really what's happening with what with how we're managing our agricultural systems right so where let's think about the four the four main principles of soil health the first four you know um minimize disturbance diversity living root and armor the soil yep okay we know we we understand minimize disturbances both chemically and tillage wise where do you see how would you rank those four of importance in other words which is the one we should always strive to do first <laughs> i i think what we've got to strive to do first is reduce the tillage intensity yeah because that'll help you provide that armor for the soil. It keeps the living roots in that soil uh, because we're not turning them up and exposing them to the atmosphere. Uh, and we know that organic matter comes from the root system, uh, you know, that standpoint. And, and then I think the, the crop diversity uh, fits into that along the way. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a ball I, with four knobs on it. <laughs> I know that. I, I understand that. But I think what I want, I'm trying to lead you yeah. down here and I'll go ahead and jump in. I think the tillage is yeah. the num number one, because once you destroy those microbial communities and, and all they're doing is to rebuild that community just in time to get wiped out again by another tillage pass, nothing's being done toward building soil health or or sequestering carbon or, or whatever whatever the case may be here. So I've always put that up at the top of the list. Now yeah. that, okay, so now let's flip the let's flip that narrative a little bit. So we've got we've got a farmer that's in the great state of Iowa that doesn't understand anything we're talking about, and they don't understand for the most part how to do farming with no tillage. So Jerry, my, the dilemma here is we've got to have people 
that are willing and able to teach these folks how to make these changes. And I see that as a huge hole here in making that next big step. Yep. In fact, a, a concept, I'll, I'll throw it out for the group because I'm sure it'll promote some, some discussion. And the fact that I think that we're on, we need what I call transformational agronomy. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and transformational agronomy is really centered around sociology. It's how to get people to adopt change, but realize that there needs to be a mentor, <laughs> a, a go-to person that says, you know, I'm have, I have a question. I have, I have a dilemma. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how, how do I solve this? And so who's going to help me? Who's going to help me? And so I think much more of it is a mentorship rather than a consultancy. <laughs> Consultants tend to come in. <laughs> I know this quite well after I retired. Consultants tend to come in. We give our advice and we leave. That's uh, right. A mentor is there all the time. Uh, yeah. And basically, if you have a question. So I'm thinking if we want to get people to change, First, they've got to realize what they can change and have the capacity to change, but then they need somebody to help them along the way when they've got questions. Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great concept, Jerry. I hadn't thought about that as like a mentorship program before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, and I have a life experience with this as well, because I have a, a group in Kansas that I work with. It's called the Prairie Soil Pioneers. Uh, then they do everything from cover crops and rotational grazing uh, to cover crops going into corn, soybean, wheat rotations, things like this. But one of the things that that group has done is formed a community to be able to uh, basically begin to look at the system and saying, how can I share equipment? <laughs> how can I share my frustrations? How yeah. can I begin to work and and have somebody that I can go ask a question to that is not 200 miles away. It's within my community. They understand right. what I'm doing and everything else. So it, it becomes a little bit of a, a mentorship, but it also becomes a pretty large peer group yeah. that, that is invested in each other's success. See, and I think that's what we've got to get in agriculture. I, I love that, Jerry, because then you can cut to the chase and, and instead of 10 guys who don't commute 10 guys or gals who don't communicate and they all wind up doing the same thing you can now have each one of those 10 doing something different yep. and trying to get to that end result sooner now i always go back to the state of wisconsin they have 40 yeah. farmer led of these peer groups you're talking about these these soil health conscious groups in 40 uh, I don't know if they're in each, if they're in one county or they're multiple. I don't know, but they've got 40 of these groups, which is absolutely amazing to me. And within these groups, there might be 50 farmers. Yeah. And they they have meetings. They bounce ideas off each other. They have folks like you come in and speak, me come in and speak, you know, whoever. And it's a great way to build everyone's confidence and to have that that peer group that support or what you know the things you've been talking about so i, I love that idea i love that well i mean it's uh, you know and, and looking at this uh you know i think that this is one of the aspects of agriculture and you you know this firsthand as well as anybody on because of the outreach that you do is people have questions mm -hmm. but then they also 
want to know where they can get some answers. Yeah. <laughs> but they, they're not just satisfied with the answer. They're saying, how can I apply this to my system? How yeah. can I how make it? And when it doesn't work, where can I, where can I talk to somebody that, that has experiences and saying, what went wrong? What can I change in all of this? And, and a lot of this, I think we need to, we need to be less bashful <laughs> about sharing <laughs> with one yeah. another. Yeah. And then we also need to be, uh, I think, a little bit more open in terms of, of sharing our successes <laughs> as well as our failures. Uh, yeah. You know, and I think that, I think it was you that said at the uh, soil health meeting that somebody said it was anyway that failure was an outcome I did not expect. Right. <laughs> that was me. And that I was you. <laughs> I don't like, I don't like negativity, Jerry. I just don't <laughs> like it. So you have to take that out of your vocabulary. Yes, it may mean the same thing, but it's not outcomes we did not expect is not near of a, of a rash statement as that was a failure. You know, there's, there's nothing that, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think that we, we tend to put failures <laughs> into a negative connotation and everything else. And that they're basically, they're, they're outliers. And I think one of the pieces that we need to learn from is, uh, is the outliers, things yeah. that are outside the mean that said, why did this occur? Uh, I was in Florida. You'll love this story. I was in Florida this last couple of weeks, and we were talking about orange trees. And there's some, uh, and there's a lemon tree that is out by itself. Uh, it is gigantic. I mean, it is probably twenty feet tall. It's got leaves that are three times the size of any wow. leaf on a, a normal orange tree. And it has no signs of citrus greening at all. <laughs> you know, the, which is it ravaging the orange and the lemon crops in, in Florida. Yeah. And like, so what's unique about this tree? We need to be studying this tree and saying, what's unique about it? What's unique about the environment? We get these really high yields in there. What's unique about it? We know some of them because we baby them and put all sorts of inputs. But I think if we study the outliers, <laughs> which is what we don't expect, I think we'll learn a lot more about how we efficiently manage our system. Uh, yeah. we, we tend too much time looking at the mean <laughs> and not have, enough looking at the outliers. Have you read that book called Outliers, Jerry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Hey, Jerry, we got, I got to go, got a question here. We got to, I need yep. to go back. Um, what area of Kansas were you mentioning that group is in and do you folks have a website? Hey, we don't have a website yet. We got to work on that. Uh, but it's just east of Manhattan. It's around that Paxico, McFarland, Alma area, and everything. So it's just off of I seventy. It's the edge of the Flint Hills. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, got it. Okay, I've got a question here for you, Jerry. Uh, years ago, you did uh, some seminal work differentiating soil organic matter that came from surface residue versus from plant roots. Mm -hmm. Now it appears that a significant portion of soil organic matter resides in microbes and their carcasses. Can you help us better understand the pathways responsible for carbon accumulation in the soil based on this latest research? 
be glad to. All right. <laughs> this is fascinating. <laughs> you know, you, you think about this, this pathway of carbon from the atmosphere into the soil. It requires a, uh, a living plant because that's what's photosynthesizing. That's what's capturing CO2 and it's sunlight and it's making sugars. Uh, you know, and those sugars are going in all sorts of different places. But part of those sugars are going to build a root system as well. But then part of that sugar that's there is exuded out, uh, out of that root system directly into the soil. It's like giving sugar to a kid. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is within five minutes those sugars are put into microbial activity. Let's just put it that way. So wow. you can see a burst of CO2 coming out. You can see all these different things because that spurs that microbial activity. It's the microbial activity that's digesting all this organic matter and it's wandering around and it's working in the process of minutes to hours. Uh, and so when that organic and that's a new understanding because typically we thought about, well, you know, you put roots in there, the roots decay, that's where organic matter comes from. Right. Now we've got the microbial activity that's really driving this process. Yes, they are uh, driving uh, the decomposition of roots once they're no longer living. Once When they're living, they're just exuding sugars to that. Yeah. Uh, once, they, once we terminate them, then you, they become uh, basically carbon nitrogen food for that. And, and that's one advantage of always keeping that, that living root system in there is because we just continually pump sugar into that soil. Uh, and that's why we really accrue that system differently. So I think we got to rethink our whole aspects of how uh, organic matter changes within the soil and how soil changes because too often we've thought only about organic matter, but I think we need to be thinking about soil structure, what it takes to create a soil, stable soil aggregate. Mm -hmm. uh, organic matter is, is kind of the end result of a lot of different things. We've got aggregate structure, we've got nutrient cycling, we've got all these other things that are going these intermediate steps. Uh, so you think that all of this really is one complex puzzle. The unfortunate part, is that we only know about 5% of the soil microbiome. Yeah, isn't that crazy? 5% is basically still unknown to us yet. So how do we begin to understand that? How do we look at a lot? But we see the end result. Uh, and, and I always talk, I talk about the soil aggregation climb, how soil builds up. Right. The first step on that climb is biological activity. We've got to restore and maintain our biological activity. And they want four things. It wants food, water, air, and shelter. <laughs> what do we want? That sounds like a human. <laughs> Basically, so, <human> life. <laughs> so um, let's see. Gosh darn it, Jerry! I just had something there. Um, so, if we've got what you're saying is we don't take enough advantage of the free stuff here. Like I like to call it, like photosynthesis is free to us. Oh, We've exactly. got to have maximum diversity of our species growing to then maximize the amount of photosynthesis that we're going to get and pump all those sugars back into the ground. And add one piece to that. 
the more diverse we make that, the more diverse we make that composition of those exudates. Yeah, and, um, and, and you told us that a few minutes ago, we only understand 5% of what's below our feet. So how do we know what the other 95% wants to eat? So give yeah. them that diversity and let them pick and choose what they want. Yep. I mean, yeah, it's basically let, let nature <laughs> figure out its balance instead of us trying to manipulate it. Yeah. Nature will always come to an equilibrium that will come to a climax state that's, that's advantageous for them. Uh, and we'll see the resultant benefits of it. And too often we worry about, well, what's the ratio between fungi and bacteria or how many different bacterial species? I just want a, an increase in biological activity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, let's, let's feed those suckers and let them go. <laughs> so with that being said, what, what would you think would be your two biggest limiting factors to raise a cash crop? In other words, yeah, no, it, you're thinking of, okay, you've got, you understand I'm, I'm asking. Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. What do you think they are? First, the first limitation is water. Mm-hmm. The second limitation is, is probably nutrients. Uh, we have an abundance of CO2. We have an abundance of sunlight. We just got to figure out how to capture it more efficiently. So if we start looking at uh, limitations to it, water's, water just is, comes at the big. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the big elephant in the room. Let's be honest. Yeah. And yeah. It's, a lot of it is, is short term. Uh, water stresses. I mean, it doesn't take much of a water deficit to to limit cell activity. Uh, you know, slight decreases in photosynthesis. Uh, you know, and then we limit how much goes into that. So we're going to see pulses going in and out of that that soil as well. Uh, you know, and then we've got to have the nutrient balance to be able to drive, and particularly N and P. You know, just look at the metabolic processes that are going on that are converting those sugars. If they're not yeah. in balance you know, then, then the whole system goes out of whack. Yeah. And, and I'm assuming Jerry, that, that if, you know, if we start to pull back and that photosynthesis um, capacity starts to deplete a little bit, we've really altered the amount of sugar going in. We've really starting to slow the whole system down. And now you just see that, that field in a two week period, it just changed You know, it just doesn't look the same. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, in fact, I was working the other day through this, that when we talk about those changes with tillage, uh, going back and reducing tillage intensity, uh, reducing the evaporation rate, getting more water into that soil, the first thing we change is water availability of that crop. And we don't think about it that way. And if we think about water availability, we grow a little bit more crop, we, we put a little bit more sugar in that, we improve our soils more quickly, it just is a, a cascading process uh, in all of this. So, you know, we, we see improvements in in all these different things, but it all begins and ends with water. Uh, yeah. yeah. All right, I got another question for you. If microbes are a significant storehouse of soil carbon and plant exudates feed the microbes, can you help us understand which plants are most, effect, are most efficient 
in terms of the percentage of plant energy released as plant exudates. Has this been studied and is it predictable? It is, it hasn't been studied very much. There's a recent paper and, and uh, um, that uh, by a couple Russians that uh, started looking at, at sugars going into soils and things like this. We are working right now on a paper we call soil energetics. Uh, and basically saying that the whole thing is driven by energy transfers from the atmosphere into the soil and everything else. No, we don't know <laughs> which plants are really efficient in that. Uh, we, we really don't know how much, you know, there, there's, there's crude estimates right now of just how much exudates are coming out. There's, there's very little information on the quantity and quality of those exudates uh, as well. I mean, do different plants, say a corn plant from the vegetative stage to the reproductive stage, do yeah. they change uh, the composition of sugars going down there? Uh, because we know that when that grain is being formed, that is a tremendous sink for all the metabolites going on. So, and roots can cease to grow at that point. But do exudates continue to, to cease to be emitted at that point? You know, we don't know. And so, I think there's a lot we can discover, but this tends us, sends us down a path that I think can open up some new ideas of how we change our soils, how do we manage our crop, how do we really put a value on crop diversity. And going back to those tenants, uh, that continuous living root system and that continuous armor uh, on that. And I want to make a point on the continuous armor because we talk about these microbial systems one of the things and we talk about the shelter piece in in the air and water is that when we put that armor or that residue on top of the soil surface is that we no longer allowed to go through those extremes of temperature those extremes of moisture uh, because we did a, an analysis of a, a midwestern conditions here uh, just looking at surface temperatures in, a corn, in corn soybean systems from the time the crop emerged until it basically covered the soil, that six weeks out there, and found out that there are a lot of years that we had temperatures in excess of 125 degrees at the surface, 100 yeah. plus degrees at, at one inch for over 50 hours during that period of time. Well, you Protein no. nature's at 104. Yeah, everything's smoked. And it, so we cook, we cook all the biology out of that. But if we had that residue layer, we never got above 86 degrees. Uh, and it was always moist in there. So we allow that biology to work. Yeah, and I'm going to also venture to say that you had, um, you had less swings in the temperature. It was more of a static. Oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty modified with the residue out there. Uh, yeah. So we, we and, and that's a sweet spot <laughs> for biology yeah. work. That's a temperature they really are optimum at. And so we got to look at mother nature <laughs> and say, what is mother nature doing? I think we get a lot of principles about, you know, how we ought to be managing agricultural systems. Yeah. It's all going to collapse in on itself is what the problem is. Yeah. And isn't it funny how when you look back through civilizations in time, it when the agricultural went, the, 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 the civilizations went. So I don't know why we can't learn from our 
our our past history. You look at every every civilization is is because they going back to Carver's uh, statement is that when the soil is wasted, the people are wasted. Yeah. Civilization, civilization. He just didn't add civilizations disappear. Right. <laughs> Right. I just put that at the end of that quote out there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I've got a question here from Tom Poplinski. Thanks, Tom, for the question. Jerry, can you take tired ground and make it good again? Now, I mean, that, that can mean a lot of things, but we know what he's talking about. An old piece of dirt that's just been abused its whole life. Can you restore that through these practices? And if you and give us some some range across the United States, I mean, this is going to differ from, you know, a field in Iowa versus a, a field in Oklahoma. So kind of give us a little bit of a spread there, if you would. Sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I can do much with those desert sands in, in Arizona, Rick. Well, <laughs> <laughs> build golf courses, OK? <laughs> yeah, well, that is a good use for them. Yeah, I, I I'm <laughs> I believe that we can change any soil. It's a matter of how rapidly we can change it. But can let's you say look, that again, Jerry? Say that again. I, I think we can take any soil and improve it. It's just a matter of, of time and what we want to put into it. Yeah. You know, and then so let's let's think about a soil from uh, from South Georgia. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's look at that. Uh, and you know, it, it's it's a sandier soil. It's a degraded soil. It's got a lot of iron oxides in it. But if we start thinking about those reducing tillage intensity, keeping that cover, keeping that living root, uh, adding uh, manure back into that system as a carbon source uh, and everything, I think we can improve that soil. In fact, I'll give you an example of this. Uh, I was on some organic orange groves while I was in Florida. And one of the things I noticed, and, and soils in Florida are basically fine sand <laughs> let's be let's be realistic of what they are yeah this it these had cover crops on them they had a number of different things that, that soil was spongy you take you talk and walk you walk across a conventional grove of oranges and that sand is going to be hard you're not going to leave a footprint and this here you could actually feel it move underneath your feet and so if we can change a fine sand in florida <laughs> we can change any soil uh and, and you actually saw that that sand it's starting to turn dark in color. Oh yeah, it's it's beginning to turn the color of your shirt collar there. So if you had, and again, this goes back to my question I asked you a little bit ago. What are the limiting factors? The first one was water. So yeah. if you can keep water on that system now, mm -hmm. you're going to raise crops. You're going to raise crops. You're going to raise them very efficiently. Uh, and so you can take, I think you can take any soil and begin to improve it. Uh, and it improves very quickly with this. This is not a decadal process. This is a month process. Uh, we, we took a, a, a soil in our in a lab when I was still working and we put no cover crop and a monoculture cover crop and a cocktail uh, on there. And we looked at all sorts of different things. But one of the things we discovered is that we were beginning to change aggregate size within 140 days. Really? Yeah. We're, we're, those microbes were working and saying they were already providing enough glue to make an aggregate. Now, it wasn't very stable at that point, but it was already showing formation. Right. So, I mean, you're talking about one growing season, 140 days. 
So yeah. you can change all this. We, we had another system where we, over two years, doubled the microbial biomass in the upper foot of that soil. I mean, that's those changes are occurring, again, because we're keeping shelter on it, we're keeping that water, we're keeping that microclimate modified, so the biology can do its thing. Yeah. See, that's just what... It, Everyone wants it, you know, happen now. It's got to, it's got to be, and what you're describing is pretty darn quick. If you just go out and take your spade, that's all you really need here is a spade. Just go out and dig down and look at the soil. I mean, Jerry, on our farm, the biggest change I've seen on our farm in the last two years is our aggregate stability has gone from two inches deep to six inches deep. And, it, but it's taken 17 years to get there. But once you get over that hump, things just perpetually and geometrically change. Right. Because now it feeds on itself and you're working it down through there. Uh, all these things are cascading. Yeah. And, and I think we've got to realize that we're managing a complex ecological system. And, you know, in agriculture, we don't talk about ecology very much. Mm -mm. But we are we need to be thinking that we're managing a ecological system in which we're producing an economic crop, but also trying to maximize the efficiency of the underground ecology as well. Right. Uh, and I think if we really get to that realization that this is how we're working, then we can begin to think differently about management, management practices, Going back to the sequence, I mean, if you look, one of the things you see when you do all those things in the southern part of the United States is that, yeah, we can change them. They may not change as quickly because the higher temperatures, we're going to see a lot more rapid, more rapid turnover. You're going to see a greater accrual if you move up and down the Midwest as we move into cooler soils. Right. You'll see a different response. But it's an ecological system, and we need to figure out how to work with Mother Nature, not against Mother Nature. Right. I get sometimes I get asked by the young students. I like to I like to be involved with the FFA as much as I can, because those kids are going to be in charge here in the next generation. And a lot of times I get asked by them, if you were to go to school, what would you major in? And I tell them I would major in biology and minor in ecology. And I think that would be a great uh, combination to have to be a regenerative farmer. Yep. Agree wholeheartedly. In fact, I've made this statement and I'll make it here to this group again is that, you know, back in the 70s, we had agriculture on one side and we had ecology on the other side. Mm -hmm. And if you talked about agroecology, you were kind of that fringe, <laughs> bizarre yeah. person in between. I don't know that we'd have near the problems we have today if 40, 50 years ago, we would embrace the fact that we we're working with an agroecological concept and an agroecological system rather than different parts of it. Right. Right. <laughs> okay. I've got another, this is uh, another question coming for me. Um, okay. I know, I know diversity is key. I understand that, but what, what, what detriments are there to a legume, based cover crop. So let's let's look at this from a couple of directions. Let's say in our system, we, we have to grow our nitrogen, so we're trying to plant heavy legumes to get to that point. 
So let's think about that. And then let's think about how much diversity do we need to add to that legume to make that offset? Or is this something that I'm, I'm confused on? Can you help me out with this, this legume based species and what impact does it have to the soil structure? Well, a lot of our legumes are tap roots as well. Uh, you know, so not only we we adding nitrogen in there, we're actually breaking that soil up as well with the taproot because they're deep rooted. Uh, you know, you, you look at all this and the decomposition of those, it, it takes soybeans, for example, uh, as a legume, because we know a lot about soybeans. Uh, yeah. You know, that, that decomposes very quickly in the fall. I mean, roots disappear quickly, uh, the residue dis because the carbon nitrogen ratio, I think a lot, of, you know, we start looking at carbon nitrogen ratios in a lot of our gloom systems. You know, we've got that nitrogen that's kind of leaking out now of the nodules that are left over. What's that do? Uh, you got all these different dynamics that are going on. So I, I think putting legumes into that, it spurs that. Look at it, look at a rich prairie. <laughs> Let's kind of go back to a native system. If you look at a, a really climax state of prairie, it's always got forbs in there. Right. And, and basically that's capturing nitrogen putting on. I think the other piece of this that, that we're beginning to discover is how many nitrogen fixing bacteria are yep. really in the soil already. Yeah. We, we, we need to turn them on. Yeah. You know, we only think about nitrogen when the rhizobium, but you know, people are going to discover there are a lot of other species out there that are doing this. How, how does a prairie really exist, you know, and maintain, right. you know, and so I think that's one of the pieces of the soil microbiome we need to be looking at. Um, and so the legumes in a system, you know, in terms of fixing nitrogen, putting in there, uh, you know, or supplying that we're re and the carbon nitrogen ratio of the root systems pretty easily degraded to make it available to the next crop out there. Uh, all these different things that are going on. So there, there are positive from that standpoint. Atmosphere is rich in nitrogen. 78% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. Yeah. Let's take advantage as much as we can and get it into that soil. Right. So, okay, I get that side of the equation. But mm -hmm. do you think we're doing degradation to that soil uh, profile by, let, let's, let's just briefly talk about alfalfa. Yeah. And, and you want to grow alfalfa for two years. You've brought nutrients back to it. You've clipped it. It's taken away. It's total removal. You've brought those nutrients, whatever form you've brought it back in. And then we want to roll out of that. First question is, it, when we roll out, would it be beneficial to add a grass to that at that point? And, and the second question is, how much damage have we done to the soil for having two years of a monocultural? or a monocrop alfalfa on that acre? Well, how much of that damage is due to the harvesting <laughs> that we've done and the equipment that we run over to, to clip that three, okay. maybe yep. four times a year? Yep. Because um, let's, let's face it, it's not always ideal conditions when we cut that, that, cut that hay. That's right. Uh, you know, I, I think that, but if you look at two years in that, uh, where people have done the rotations on it, you know, I don't think it's a negative, Rick. I, okay. I think it, it's a matter of how do we manage that. I think putting that, 
and you put a grass into that system, I, because one of the things that always intrigues me is how much a, a small grain or grass with that fibrous root system changes the soil profile. Because now we open up a lot of different channels yeah. in there that we don't see with a tap-rooted system. Tap roots go deep, but they don't really do anything for the surface. Right. Uh, which is a detriment. We see that's why we say I think some of the hard ground in alfalfa because we don't have any roots really near that, uh, near that surface layer. So we're not putting any structure, not putting any exudates into that part of the profile. That that grass would keep that uh, that going on from that standpoint. So I think that there's there's where we see advantages of mixtures uh, yep. in all of this. And and I never really thought about that as maybe overseeding. <laughs> with a with some sort of grass in in the in the last year of alfalfa may actually be advantageous not only for productivity for the but for the soil over time yeah that's what we've started to do we pulled some acres out we knew last yeah. fall we were going to make these these uh, alfalfa fields go to corn so we put in 40 50 pounds of cereal rye yep uh, trying to get that offset started and get that fibrous system up in the top two three four inches so I, I'm I'm happy to hear you say that that was might have been a, a good move. So <laughs> yeah, I was just running scenarios in my mind about <laughs> all the different things going on. You know, it, you know, I, I think well, that <laughs> but the thing the thing that is so is so hard here, Jerry. As time goes on, okay, you sit down, you draw up these plans. We're going to do. You know, the Smithfield's going to get this, the Brownfield's going to get this, whatever you call your fields. But then something happens, you get a weather event, and you're knocked out of time. And now you can't get that 16-way cocktail that you wanted out there because two-thirds <laughs> of it is going to winter kill. So you don't want to waste your money. So now you're pulling back in. And yeah, you've got, you've got four species in a cocktail, but they're all kind of the same thing now. So yeah. those are the things we... Are just constantly battling out here in the war zone, you know, and then we have these things that I call regen acres where that's when you can reset the clock and you take that acre out of production and then you can get back into the into the cocktails that you need to have out there. Yeah, well, and I, I think that you just hit on a point that the best laid plans are always going to, <laughs> to be derailed with with some some aspect of this, but I think we got to understand some of the the, the principles, uh, you know, in, in that and saying oh, so if if we have something that's winter killing, can we put it in in the spring, uh, yeah. to, and just overseed uh, quickly to to be able to add that that different diversity. Uh, into that as well you know we always think we have to plant all our cover crops at the same time but if we we thought about staggering the planting uh, to take advantage of the climate you know what could we do differently or what would we see differently in that system as well yeah I know there's just <laughs> I mean Jerry this is a this is a mountain we've got to climb I mean there's just so many um divergence off of this i mean there's so many things we could talk about that are going to affect the end result of this oh yeah um, and it's far from linear <laughs> uh, and you know one of the things that we are very poor at 
is understanding interactions. <laughs> we understand main effects. <laughs> we no. talked about water. I mean, we know what water does, but how's water interact with nutrients? How's water interact with uh, different species out there in terms of changing? I mean, we are really poor <laughs> at understanding interactions, uh, yeah. but nature is made up of a whole lot of complex interactions and, and we need, we need to spend more time observing. <laughs> I think some of these systems and saying, you know, what's really happening? Going back to your spade example, uh, I mean, digging in the soil. I mean, I, I've seen changes in, in soil color uh, within a growing season uh, when you start looking at, at all of this, uh, you know, because we're adding a little detritus, we're adding that. Uh, you know, it, it's not a long-term process. Uh, right. Well, I want to go back on something that I've always wondered. Um, we talked about briefly about nodulation with legumes. Okay, 78% nitrogen in the air. Let's take advantage of that. It's free. Let's go get it. Do you know, is there anyone out there or is there any test anywhere that anyone is scoring the nodules to then translate into pounds of N per acre. So can we pull a plant out, somehow score the nodulation on that plant, and that equals X amount of pounds of nitrogen? You know, we always do that simple thing with soybeans as part of the rotation saying, you know, if you have this, you've got yep. this much nitrogen. Has that ever been proved or disproved or even evaluated? It's a rule of thumb. Uh, you know, and I, I think that here's here's one of those, I always put things in knowledge gap areas, Rick. <laughs> I think this is one of the this is this would be good to know. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and a part of this is is a little bit more complex than just looking at the nodules. It's saying, so if we put that legume in there and we're feeding the microbial system, we know that that microbial system is breaking down uh, organic matter and it's releasing nitrogen. So how much is, is nitrogen is coming from the nodulation process? How much is coming from the microbial, what I'll put in the microbial digestion bucket <laughs> as well. And so we have a combined set of nitrogen. It may have all originated from the atmosphere, but the whole dynamics is, it becomes pretty complex at that point. And we only tend to think about microbes and carbon, but nitro, microbes and nutrients, you know, and they're, they're re releasing things from the sides of clay particles and, and uh, old organic matter that's out there and everything else, and probably chewing on the sides of rhizobium <laughs> right. as well. And so who knows what the synergistic relationship is between rhizobium bacteria and other bacteria within the soil yeah okay <laughs> so now let's go a little further yep we've 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 um fixed this nitrogen it's somewhere in this process of what you just described now how stable is that nitrogen now in that profile i mean so in other words can we I don't want to use the word assume here, but I don't want to use guarantee either. Can we make a statement that there will be nitrogen available for next year's cash crop? No, I think we could make that statement because we know that in that soil, we're going to have all that microbial activity releasing 
that storage and it's going to be in the organic nitrogen form. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the microbes are creating ammonia, which plants love uh, in all of this. So I, I think that we could pretty well assume uh, so, so, that there's going to be nitrogen available. Now, yeah. So now let's throw that massive cocktail out there. Now that's going to go out and suck all that up, right? Behind you've raised, you've planted that legume, you've planted your corn crop into it. It's all that legume is released. Now we're going to come in and follow that with a with a cocktail. How's that fit in? And you're gonna you're gonna take that nitrogen up. You're gonna store it within that plant. So you've put it into the bank. <laughs> uh, think about it that way. But ultimately, that bank's going to release it back to that soil to make it available to the next crop out there. That's right. what the whole dynamics of the biology is doing for us. It basically is helping it store, taking it back out, making it available. Yeah. And, and what we really need to be running is some N15 studies where we could label it and saying, mm -hmm. you know, what goes, label that nitrogen uh, going into the rhizome, uh, rhizobium, and where does it come from? Where is it going back? So we could kind of trace it in the soil. Those are complex studies to run. I mean, they just are really pain. Wouldn't that be cool, though, to be able to follow that flow of that nitrogen? Oh, I, I think we need to be following the flow of nitrogen. I think we need to be following the flow of carbon, yeah. labeling that sugar <laughs> as it goes down. And where does it end up? Yeah. You know, oh, I wow. think if we could run both carp, uh, C13, C14 studies and, and nitrogen labeled nitrogen studies, we could even put deuterium in there for water as well if we wanted to get very complex. But, uh, you know, and look at just really how do these things move within the soil? How do they cycle? And everything else, uh, you know, it, it would be a cool study to run. Uh, and I think it would open our eyes and saying, boy, we really understand a little about this process. Yeah, I think that's what it would be. We, we would be, yeah. Um, <clears throat> got a question here. Yep. How does carbon storage stratify down through the soil profile? Via roots. What is it? Via roots. Via roots. I mean, basically, you go back to our example on a taprooted system uh, versus a uh, that fibrous root system. Uh, one of the things you look at when we take that in tillage intensity out of there is that we have a lot of old root channels. One of the things that's very fascinating is dig root channels in a very light colored soil where you can actually see the, the edge of that root channel and you find out that there's a really distinct color change <laughs> between that, that old root channel right. and the soil because you see right. it's really dark along there, a lot of organic matter. And old new roots follow old root channels <laughs> Uh, so they go down through there as well. So we, we just keep pushing that carbon down there. The other thing is that biology does a lot of this as well. Uh, you think about earthworms, uh, you think about a lot of the other things that move up and down that soil profile, uh, columba and bugs and things like this, they're dragging organic matter down as well. And so it's a biological process that's moving this, but it starts with that, getting that root channel to open it up. I mean, we always talk about the advantages of deep-rooted, tap-rooted crops where you can create the root channels. Right. The, the fibrous root systems are kind of helping the aeration at the surface. 
but that's how we can begin to move carbon down there. Right. Okay. But it's a slow process because there's not a lot of roots down there as well. So it's a function of rooting volume too. That's true. All right, we've got a question from the crowd here. Tim is asking, is there a certain size of soil aggregate required in order to provide a low oxygen environment to harbor free living nitrogen fixing bacteria? Certain size of aggregate. Well, you know, we get up to that plus one, plus two millimeter range, that's a pretty good aggregate if it's stable. Uh, you know, it, it's not so much the low oxygen, I think it's even more uh, of a fact of, of high oxygen, because we want, what, a, what do we want most of our microbes to be? We want them to be aerobic systems. We don't want to be anaerobic. Right. Uh, right. We, want to, we want that oxygen there. We want them turning over. We want them functioning as, as rapidly as possible, because once Think about what happens in soil and plants when we we move over to a anaerobic condition. That crop is no longer healthy. It, right. Think about what it smells like in terms of soil. I mean, we we pick that up. That's just decaying bug bodies. Uh, but uh, you know, you, you think about all this, and so that getting that one to two millimeters of, of aggregate near that surface, so we get that oxygen exchange going on. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, then we can get that in there. So we're promoting that, basically sustaining the, the aerobic biological system. And, but, you know, we need to have that for that, uh, that rhizobium to work as well. Uh, you know, and again, it's, it's getting that air down to that uh, system as well. So you think about how does, how does air get down to that uh, nodule? You know, it's not going down through the, the phloem of that plant. It's coming down through the, the, uh, the root system and oh, probably wow. moving alongside the root as well. Right. And what are the differential pressures and <laughs> all of this, uh, you know, and you start looking at, at gas exchanges. You know, there's a there's a major difference in uh, uh, pressure between, uh, say, a six inch and, and the, the surface and, you know, when you if we have a, an absence of nitrogen gas in there and there's a differential pressure, I mean, it's easily going to move down there, but we've got to have the structure to be able to facilitate that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Got another question here uh, from Adam. We've started to add perennial forbs like chicory, plantain, and small burnet in an effort to add diversity to our alfalfa we've, we've already touched on this but let's go ahead red clover grass stands any any thoughts on that yeah i mean getting that perennial in there i mean you got it again it's a different species <laughs> uh different my different exudates coming down uh i assume it's still a high quality forage that you can utilize with your alfalfa sure you know and so what what who says we have to grow monocultures all the time yeah particularly yeah. in our forages i mean exactly. cow, cows kind of love <laughs> you know cows love a variation in their diet as well um you know <laughs> so. it's like i always say i love cheeseburgers jerry but i can't eat them every day you got to have something different so totally agree but now i want to jump in on this one though a little bit 
We've got to understand, though, what is our end game here for termination, okay? Yep. If we're going to add these perennials, which I think they are awesome, because when I talk about diversity, I talk about diversity in three ways. And one of the three ways I talk about is annuals and perennials. When you sit down and think about a cocktail that we create, they're almost always all annual plants. Right. Okay, we got to get that perennial in there. Well, that's fine. If you are using chemistry to terminate, that's fine. If you are now mechanically terminating, we got to be very careful because you're not going to suppress these perennials. Trust me, I cannot stop chicory. Yeah. Well, and that I think there, you know, even even termination of annuals <laughs> without the use yeah. of chemicals can be problematic at time as well. Um, yeah. But. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you start thinking about the, the perennials as part of that system, are there phenological stages of that perennial where they're more susceptible to a mechanical disturbance? So if you ran a roller crimper over them, would, would that, that cause them to, to die? Uh, you know, and, and all of this. So I think that we, we need to understand a little bit more about the phenology of plants and and when they can be terminated because we know if we have a perennial and we we chop off the top of it some way you know sometimes it comes back sometimes it doesn't so what is that phenological stage and right. you know we, we don't pay enough attention to that uh in saying where are susceptible areas of phenology trickery might be different obviously different than than another perennial uh and which would add a real complexity if you have all of those out there of how you terminate them. But I think these are things we need to be asking ourselves is how do some of these things match up and, and looking at this so we can get away from chemical termination on it. I do. I do love the question though, because you, we've, yep. we've already talked about it, but you've got to get that diversity introduced into that, that monoculture alfalfa field or, or whatever the field is. And 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 that chicory, wow! Does it put down a root system? I mean, yeah. you want to go deep with that? You're going down four or five feet deep with that root. So um, it's all good. Um, all right, I've got a I got another question here for you. Um, why? Let's see. Ask about the uh, the stabilization of carbon. And why do companies want us to draw down gaseous carbon and store it as a permanent solid? Why is that happening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody thinks there's money to be made in carbon. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, well, <laughs> Nothing, nothing like a little greed to, uh, to to get people to ask different questions. But um, you know, you, why do we want to do this? I mean, let, let's be honest about what's really happening in our soils. We're taking gaseous carbon. We're we're creating a, a sugar and we're putting it down in there. We're we're putting it into a, a aggregates. Uh, you know, glues it around that that soil particle. We're putting it into organic matter. None of that is permanent. That, let's be honest, that, that we're only temporarily storing carbon within our soil environment. Uh, 
you know, and, and so, you know, we just happened to accrue it over time. And so we're building up the bank size. I mean, none of your bank accounts are permanent, <laughs> but, you know, we continue to add to our retirement accounts. So I, I use this analogy as think about soil carbon is like your, your IRA or your retirement account. Just, you know, you're going to put money into it. You're going to try to diversify that portfolio as much to maximize the returns. You really don't want to take anything out if you want to accrue it. And you, you just, you got to be in it for the long haul. But soil carbon is kind of the same way is that we're putting it in there. We're temporarily storing it. We're increasing the size of the bank, the money in the bank, but it's not going to be there forever. Uh, it's going to be recycled. It comes back out, uh, all of this. And so the best we can do is figure out how best to keep it in a, in a, increase positive state all the time uh, you know and so you know I, I think that why everybody's so interested in this is that they believe that soils are a, a, a great potential for reducing the atmospheric concentration of carbon and that's going to have an, an impact on our on our climate uh, I think in my opinion will be disappointed in that answer when it finally appears as well. Um, there yeah. are too many other sources and the, ap the whole atmosphere is very complex. We start changing things in the soil uh, across land masses. What's gonna happen in terms of the ocean, in terms of giving this off. So, I mean, you, you got a very complex balance across the whole world. Uh, and, and until we uh, reduce our carbon output, you know, we're, <laughs> We can store some of that back in soil, and I think it'll be positive for us uh, from an agricultural perspective. Will we see an impact on our climate? Eh, it's a pretty complex world from that standpoint. Yeah, and this, you know, we all say the, you know, people have got to go slow, be careful with this carbon market. Um, there's a long way to go to get this ironed out. Um, don't jump in, you know, just. I don't know. I don't. I don't know, Jerry. It's just. It's just mind-boggling how. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here. Is there a metric to measure carbon in the soil profile accurately and repeatably and cheaply? Is that possible today? No. No. And so, and and why it's not possible is that everybody's relying on, and they're only looking at one part of the the carbon. They only want to look at soil organic carbon. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of carbon in that soil that's not in that soil carbon state that has any positive advantages. Uh, and and so here's the analogy I've used on, on carbon and, and mark carbon markets. If you get into improving carbon in your soil for the carbon market, it's like new running board money for your pickup. <laughs> but if you if you get into improving carbon in your soil for the agricultural perspective, it's new pickup money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you improve your profitability you get to keep all that money and everything else you know you're letting somebody else rent the pickup if you're getting in the carbon market piece of it right um, you know i think we need to be honest about that in fact the carbon markets won't even let you get in <laughs> because no. you've already done all these practices the way it's structured it's um and the way i see it it doesn't have any longevity to it you know oh no um so i, I I don't know. We could spend the rest of the, the, the time on this, but I don't want to. Um, I've got 
we've got something special here, folks. We've got a uh, a guest going to come on and ask a question to Jerry, and Jerry knows who this is, and I am honored to uh, introduce uh, Rick Haney. Dr. Rick Haney, how are you? How are you, Rick? Is Rick there? He will be shortly. <laughs> yeah, I think we have a lot of discussions about the carbon markets, but you know, I, 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 I'm much more fascinated with how we can improve our soils, improve our production efficiency. Yeah. We can come back and have a lot of discussion about that and what yeah. I think it means for us. <laughs> hey, Rick. <laughs> hey. Rick, how you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Okay, okay here's my question to Jerry. Since you've had a career of 700 years, <laughs> you know a lot of stuff. <laughs> Tell me the moment that really changed the direction that your mind was heading in ag agriculture. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good one, isn't it? Great that's question. <laughs> So it sounds like a PhD uh, exam question, Rick. Um, you know, no, I I think that um, what really got me thinking differently about this is uh, when I was transferred back to Ames <laughs> to uh, begin to direct the uh, the soil tilth lab at that point. One of the questions that that well, not one of the questions, one of the statements that Dean Plowman made to me because uh, he was the administrator at that point. He says, "You have a new lab, but for heaven's sakes, don't use any of our existing models to develop that laboratory. Be as imaginative as you can, and think about how you really solve problems." that address agriculture. The other statement that was made to me was my dad <laughs> and all of this. And he says, you know, when you're, when you're directing that lab, make sure that what you're doing has an impact on us that are farming. And, and then there was one other statement that was made to me uh, by uh, Jim Kinsella. <laughs> and that was that, because Jim was, you know, into no-till and strip-till, and you know, he's been kind of the father of that. He says, you guys are doing a lot of Me Too research. You're, you're basically evaluating practices that we already have on the farm. We know them work. You need to be working on problems that we don't even anticipate yet, uh, that we need the answers to five and 10 years from now. And you know how many times I lay awake at night, Rick, <laughs> thinking about how do you get ahead of the most innovative farmers out there to anticipate the things that, that they need to know and, and begin to understand those interactions. So it's really kind of been that collision of events that said, you know, we need to be doing things differently. We need to be thinking about how do we bring together disciplines that are beyond the standard way in which we've been approaching science. And so those have been kind of epiphany moments for me, or maybe kick in the pants moments <laughs> from people that says, you know, we got to do things differently and we got to get these problems solved or agriculture as quickly as we can. Well, thank God you listened to them. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I'm oh. not that dense at times that people think, you know. <laughs> well, hey, hey, Rick, while we've got you, let's just flip that question back to you. <laughs> oh, that that's an easy one. See, I thought about that before I asked Jerry that question. Yeah, because, I was going to say. He's, he's I mean, it was farmers. It was working for farmers when I was younger and, you know, watching them struggle and wanted to do something to make a difference and then, you know, ended up in academic world, which I never thought I would be in. And it's like, you know, soil testing just struck me as a way you could really impact what Jerry was talking about, really impact a farmer's bottom line and, 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 uh, being a fan of nature has been huge. I mean, everything I look at is from that viewpoint. You guys were talking about nitrogen. If we could, you know, label nitrogen, I try to take my little brain and go in and be a microbial cell and watch this. You know, I try to think from that perspective and and it, it it's a very different approach to looking at stuff and i'll throw this out there so we're talking about carbon markets right <laughs> and you guys just have done a great job because i've come up with some calculations that we're going to pay farmers for their dynamic carbon not their stagnant right, right. carbon every year so this would enhance so there are ways to do things that we haven't come up with yet that yeah. that can get us down the road and i agree with jerry's analogy about carbon but and other thing i've said many times is that carbon and nitrogen are married you really can't have one without the other in a biological system. so that's also on, on on point i thought you guys did a good job of that right now stop. carbon nitrogen and water are all yep. linked at the hip you know yep. they're they're a three-legged stool uh and we always try to separate them but mother nature doesn't yeah um, and, and I think the other piece of that, going back to your dynamic carbon piece, is that, you know, we, we spend a lot of lip service on ecosystem services. But I think that uh, we now really begin to need to think about how do we get agriculture to, to be rewarded for people that are doing this dynamic carbon for their improvement in uh, yep. environmental quality, uh, both water and air. Uh, all those different pieces to come together because I think those markets really are what society needs to be paying for, yeah. uh, and where where some real advantages lie. So and don't don't you think it's a really interesting time to be in this space because I think we're going to look back in ten years and see this as a fairly pivotal few oh. years uh, in, as far as soil health and, and regenerative agriculture and all that goes. I think. We're right there. Uh, oh, I, I the agree. I, I think I think we're at a moment in time in which we have a lot of the pieces in place to be able to have a what I think is the next agricultural revolution. I mean, we had the green revolution where we put nitrogen on, we put the genetic. Right. <laughs> we, right. You and I both know about that. Um, hey, Jerry, that's where we I kill think, everything. <laughs> but I think we're at the point of, of the next agriculture revolution where we realize that we have to manage our soils differently. We have to think about our cropping systems differently. We have to think about our endpoints differently than the way we've been doing. But when we emerge out of that, we'll have a new agricultural system and a new philosophy that'll, that'll sustain us and provide the food security we need. Yep. Yeah. So, Jerry, what would be, you know, Let's just stay here because I think this is on a lot of people's thinking right now. What would be a 
a system that you would design that I hate the, the word carbon market. I hate that term. But what would you come up with to for a way to promote this regenerative farming, but yet they get paid for, let's just let's call it carbon markets. Let's just call it that. But what would be your metric to get that measurement done? Well, let's, let's put it in the concept of uh, not a carbon market, but an ecosystem market. Okay, I love it. And, and the reason I go back to the ecosystem market is thinking about uh, not only improving carbon and, and water storage within that, that profile, but also reducing environmental impact, looking at a landscape type of approach that says, you know, we're going we're gonna to manage this whole landscape differently. Uh, and so now we get into this and saying, what's the best thing I can do for this section of land? And not, not think about a field basis, but think more about a landscape. And when we start thinking about landscapes, then we, then we can easily draw the water connections and you can draw the other connections that are out there uh, and all of this. And so when we begin to think that way, then you can begin to realize that maybe we need to be managing different parts of that landscape in a different way. Uh, maybe there's areas that are, that are suited to corn and soybeans in the Midwest. Maybe they need to have a different crop on them. Uh, you look at all this and how do we, how do we begin to design this differently with, uh, with ecology in mind? Uh, you know, as you and I were talking earlier about having that ecological bent, how do, how do we begin to look at this system differently and, and multiple endpoints, not just carbon, but saying, you know, what, what's the most efficient uh, production of that plant that's out there? Is it the most water use efficient? Is it most the nutrient use efficient? Am I converting that into quality of grain? Because uh, we, you know, we, you know, producers push back on it. So well, I don't get paid for quality. Uh, but I do think that it has an impact for us. Uh, and we need to be thinking that way. Uh, what's the most diverse thing that we can do on this landscape that that may integrate it differently? And I think that th this whole emerging thing, uh, there's all of these people that now talk about natural asset companies and things like this, you know, which is a term that everybody throws around. Nobody has any idea what it means, but, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, I think we get to design that for them. Uh, but interestingly, you know, it's, it, they're thinking that there's, that's, an, that's the next emerging market past carbon is, is natural assets. Well, think about what natural assets we have. We have nutrients, we have carbon, we've got water, uh, we've got all that, that raw material that we produce in plants. So to me, plants are a natural asset. How do we capitalize that on landscape and begin to think differently about it? Uh, so I, I think that we get, I think we're in a driver's seat, uh, going back to Rick's comment, I think we're in a driver's seat to be able to drive what the next generation or the next revolution of agriculture looks like. Yeah. And, and, and instead of focusing on one piece of that puzzle, let's look at all the pieces and how we bring them together differently. Yeah. Yeah. Because instead of adding things to the soil, we should be thinking about pulling things off the soil to make it more efficient to your point. We're talking yeah. about water quality issues. We're talking about nutrient density and foods. I mean, 
it's, it's a win-win scenario from almost any angle you look at if it's properly managed. Yep. You know, and, and how many times do we look at things like uh, how efficient is that plan in capturing solar radiation <laughs> or that crop stand? Uh, well, I'll tell you, I had this discussion with, uh, I'm married to Dr. Liz Haney, y'all <laughs> didn't know, and I had this discussion with Dr. Haney the other day that we were talking about energy, but the very thing you guys were talking about, energy in the soil, so yeah. you can sunlight in, and it hit, it struck me, probably stupidly, but that every turn of the ATP cycle, a byproduct of CO2. So when you look at cellular re respiration, that's an energetic measurement also. And mm -hmm. so if we're going to look at different cover crops, you know, we can do in-ground CO2 to measure the energy possibly at some point in the future uh, as far as how, how that goes. And so, uh, and again, and I bring that up just because there's so many things out there we don't, haven't got our heads around yet to really understand the system, but we're getting, we're, we're looking and that's, that's what's very different. I think. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, I think it's an exciting time to be an agriculture, Rick. Uh, and, but I think that we, if we back away and, and don't, <laughs> Joe's don't chase rabbits at times <laughs> and, and keep the broader perspective of, of what we're really trying to accomplish uh, and don't get diverted by saying squirrel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And chasing. We do that. We all do that with, that's one of our favorite pastimes. But, uh, you know, I think that then we, but we're, I think we're in a better place of being able to have the tools to understand these interactions. You know, we talk about carbon and water, nitrogen all linked. You know, how do those things interact, uh, both in the soil and the plant? What are some of the metrics we need to be using or measurements we need to be using uh, that give us an idea of, of just how that plant's responding? Plus the fact that we have these capabilities of being able to track it all the time. That we can have these continuous measurements to say, oh, that plant hiccuped. <laughs> or, you know, we see all these pulses going on. So what are, what's that telling us? Right. Well, guys, I think, I think it's, and maybe we're doing it now, but I think that it's coming that we're going to, you know, we're going to sit down and, and we're going to just answer 10 questions and we're going to come up with a cocktail that's going to address a weed problem, a fertility problem, and, you know, based on certain exudates that come out of certain uh, plant species, it's going to then feed different parts of that microbial biome, and it's going to turn things on, maybe turn some off. I, I think we're going to get to that point where we can prescribe these, these cocktails for, for specific situations. Oh, no doubt. That, that study yeah. we did with green covers where we pulled all the plants and shook the dirt off the roots after we pulled the plant up. So we were actually looking at what was happening right around the root from its old microbial yeah. respiration and weoc and all that. That was mind blowing. Yeah. It's like you didn't see that coming. It's like these all these plants you thought that that, that soil would really like, they didn't so much. And uh, the ones you didn't think they'd like, they love. And yeah. because and again, nature, if we look to nature for the answers, it's like our job is to understand it well enough to go all right, let's put it in this situation and see what happens. Right. Let it tell us what's going on instead of modern agriculture has been, we're going to put all these inputs in that we've come up with and make it work. Just make it force nature to, to our will. And that hasn't worked out great. 
So maybe the other way, letting it teach us is, is a better approach. Yeah. yeah, that's what I call the arrogance of agronomy, Rick. <laughs> we, we know how best to, to hammer the system. That's right. <laughs> and if it doesn't work, we'll get a bigger hammer. But, that's uh, right. <laughs> but you know what, guys? What's amazing to me is you two, and I know there's others, but think about when you came in to your government job and you were supposed to work with uh, mass soil destruction and how are we going to make these systems work? How are you going to make a farmer profitable by tillage, 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 and more tillage? And then think about your education that led you up to that point, and then now where you are. You know, that's that transformation to me is what's amazing. So give me your thoughts on that. Well, yeah. When, like <laughs> when I went to grad school, you guys were talking about, you know, microbial activity is so important, right? When, and, Absolutely, number one in my book. But when we first went to grad school and we took soil samples and dried them and rewetted them and trapped CO2, and we got hammered for that. It's like, no, you have to wait seven to 10 days before you measure this, anything, or it doesn't mean anything because soil doesn't, that's not natural. Yeah. So I go to the, <laughs> we're showing one day CO2 readings and they're like, oh no, you can't, no, you can't do that. And the guy's like, that's not natural. And I said, right. So when the soil dries out outside and it rains, what, what is that? Yeah. And he just walked, this is a very famous British scientist and he walked off just mad, just, you know, because nobody ever really challenged him from such a simpleton's perspective. Yeah. I, I outsampled him. I was so simple that I, I scared him. He didn't know. But that was the perspective that we came in with. And, and, and Jerry knows this. And it was like, okay, we want you to use these tools to mm -hmm. destroy this system and make it better. Yeah. Keep, just, keep destroying the system. But think about that. that Let's get higher yields. That makes no sense. That makes zero sense. Zero. So, Jerry, <laughs> give me your take on that. Well, you know, your education building up to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I kind of come from a different background. Uh, you know, my uh, PhD is in agricultural climatology and, and everything. So I have that soil plant atmosphere interaction and uh, dynamic and all of this. And, you know, now we're dealing in, in all sorts of complexities. Uh, but, you know, we're still at the same point of, is how we manipulate <laughs> that system, you know, how do you put nutrients in, how you put water in, how do you, how do you till that soil to, to make it productive? And you realize that, you know, that's, as we start looking at that, these pieces going forward, you know, we're continuing to degrade our soil resource. We're taking carbon out of it. We're making it more fragile. We're making it more dependent on the inputs. You're going, this doesn't make any sense. We've got to think differently. Uh, about uh, all of these components and how they work together and and getting back to a much more holistic view uh, of agriculture than what we have. And just saying, well, we can solve all this by putting on five more pounds or 50 more pounds of nitrogen. Well, you know, maybe that's not the way you do it. Uh, you know, how do you reduce tillage out there? Um, I mean, we still have a lot of people that say, well, you know, that, that soil needs to be tilled every so often. Uh, you know, it, it needs to, you know, it needs, we need to break up the compaction layers. Well, if you really manage that soil, it doesn't have compaction layers. Uh, 
you know, you got a lot of these different pieces that are going on. And I, I think that we need to reorient our thinking. Uh, we need to reorient how we're thinking about these pieces coming together and move away from these, like I said, move away from the, the uh, uh, main effects into the interactions to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, so I, Rick, Rick and I are unbridled by our former employees, so we can do all all sorts of things now. So, <laughs> yeah. well, I wonder, you know, I I think, and I have no proof of this, guys. I, I'm not I'm not a lab, or I'm not specific like you two guys. Or I just do testing on my farm, and it and it it works, and and we go with it. But I think that our current hybrids slash varieties are losing their associations with the mycorrhizal fungi and i see this because when 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 the seed dealers come out and they want to give us the latest and greatest genetics they've got and you introduce those into our system they are always down in the bottom third at the end of the day so I have no other explanation to say that they've just totally losing that association. They've become 100% dependent on the synthetic inputs. That is well, not. Yeah, they're bred for that. That's not good. When we when I was in Oklahoma working with those farmers back in the 70s, I mean, there was this wheat variety called Triumph 63. I think it came out in 1963 is why they call it Triumph 63. It made 30 bushels in western Oklahoma year in, year out. didn't really matter what happened. If it rained or didn't rain, you know, it, it was just consistent. And then and then we, they start coming out all these new varieties that would make 35 bushel or 40 bushel. Or 40, and boy, the game was over. Mm -hmm. And I asked those farmers a while back, we talked about the old days. I said, why did you ever get away from that? that wheat variety he said i never should have yeah yeah he, he i mean he was just he was struck by that and yeah you know but that's the world we live in and that's what we're doing but i think you'll see a push towards more heritage grains and that kind of stuff go back to some of uh, in india they grow seven to ten varieties of wheat together all the yeah. time they don't yeah. ever do monoculture it's like yeah that's right the right path <laughs> Yeah, you know these those things are out there. We and we can get back to some of that at some point. I totally agree, Rick. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, again, I talk about diversity in three different ways, and one of those other three ways is I think we have to have cash crop diversity now. I mm -hmm. think we've got to start finding those synergies of cash crops that grow together. And then depending on what situation you're in, you keep them together and feed them to livestock, you set, you take them to grain and separate them, whatever the case may be. But there are so many synergies that we don't understand out there. And yep. we've got to start taking advantage of this. All right, I've got another question from the crowd. Uh, I think th this is from a guy we all know. This is from Russell Hedrick. Thanks for <laughs> listening in, Russell. Jerry, how do you feel about measuring carbon with a LOI test based on 58% of organic matter being carbon? Jerry, just say, I feel good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> I feel good. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, the loss on ignition test and everything else. Uh, yeah. 
it, it's been the standard that people have been using is the right one that we ought to be using. Yeah, probably not, but it's the standard right now that everybody's going to measure against. And I think we we get confused <laughs> by by what all of this is going on. And I go back to are there better ways of being able to measure the 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 carbon? And and that's only one form of carbon within the soil. That's where we've dried it out and we burn it all off and everything else. But there's a lot tied up in that soil that's that dynamic carbon that that Rick talked about and I talk about that escapes that whole process. And so we're, we're really not capturing the system. We're capturing a part of the system and saying, oh, this is the overall picture. It's like looking at that one corner of a painting and saying, oh, that's a Picasso <laughs> or that's somebody else and everything else. We don't, we're not seeing the whole portrait out there. And I think we've got to, we got to discover some new techniques for how we start managing and measuring what's going on in that soil. Yeah. Well, I'd add to that is since I've been starting, uh, since yeah. I've been working with Lance at Regen Ag Lab, I've been looking at samples that have had Haney test and PLFA run on them. And that has been eye opening. And yeah. I really love that because you see things in both those tests that are complementary and not. And yeah. it explains different things. Mm -hmm. As far as loss on ignition, as far as mass production of a carbon estimate it's by far the most efficient use of money by far now i've seen a lot of data that's my well pump of toc dry combustion versus loi and and i'm always impressed how well loi actually does yeah to be quite honest now is it perfect no but from a standpoint of volume it's it's you know it's what you got and, and yeah, hopefully we'll have better tests someday. But, you know, guys, I think, I think we can go out and, and, and what I love about the Haney test is Rick, you are, you are giving a soil health score in that test. And I think we can build something around this metric of going out and establishing a soil health score that then translates whatever the word you want to, if you want to use carbon market, that's fine. Then make that transaction happen. Then guess what? All the trailblazers who've gotten us here can now play ball because they'll have a soil health score too. So, well, and, and we're, we're currently yeah. coming up with a soil health score for PLFA analysis. Yeah. Oh, really? So, yeah. and, and I had a farmer, called the other day and I got to use both of those on his, he had run both on his soil. And that was so fun because I laid it on him, you know, it's like, well, here's this, you know, and, and it, he said at the end of it, it helped him understand it. And I, and that's what we're about is trying to help understand the systems we're looking at. And the more of those tools we can bring to bear will be, is, will be better, but that'll, right. that'll be helpful in the future, near future. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I've always said, keep this simple. You know, I, I think you can do it with a, a spade, a ring, and a hammer, and a couple cylinder tubes filled with water. You know, and you could get a soil health score pretty quick out in the field. So, oh, yeah. I, I don't know. We just, we, just, we just want to make everything so difficult, you know. Um, and we want to use things that 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 aren't accurate and aren't repeatable and it's just it's just very frustrating because i'm i i'm a farmer and i i feel like if we if we somehow try to bamboozle the farmer with these carbon markets they're not ever coming back and they're not going to be part of this and it's really going to put 
uh, a hindrance on this this regenerative movement because if you know if you're going to participate in these carbon markets you're going to have to follow the four principles of soil health that's all there is to it and I see that slowing down if if some monkey wrench comes into this. Well, I did. I think you're giving the people a lot of credit on the on the <laughs> on the carbon markets because right now I think they're thinking that if we reduce we reduce tillage or we add cover crops, but not necessarily simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're picking and choosing. Uh, they're looking and and. Uh, and, and I think that's why a lot of them have moved over just to practice-based <laughs> and instead of saying, you know, what's the real change out there if you're adopting these practices, we're going to pay you and all of this. I think we still got to get back to getting producers to realize that improving their soil is a benefit to them, that don't have the discussion about the carbon markets. Think about what it's doing for their uh, their improvement of production efficiency, their improvement of yield stability, exactly. uh, taking care of those, just like uh, Rick said with the uh, the Triumph 63, producing 30 bushels a year, year after year, because it was a resilient variety uh, in Western Oklahoma. Now we've got our varieties so that they're, they're so, fra- I, I'll use the word fragile, that they show a lot of swings from year to year. Uh, yeah. They're, they're dependent on lots of different things. If you don't supply the right inputs at the right time, they fall apart. Uh, even if you look at them wrong, sometimes they fall apart. But, uh, you know, and I think we've, we've got to get back to how do we build a resilient system? Because that's profitability to the producer. I'm yeah. more concerned about making a profit for the producer rather than a, a profitability for some corporate company. Because um, I think that in the end, it, Agriculture will be far better off if we we go down the approach from that standpoint. Right. Well, guys, we could go on for another two hours, but I probably need to shut this down, Jerry. And I'm going to ask Rick the same thing in a minute. Any closing comments, Jerry? What? How do you want to wrap this up? You have any burning questions that didn't get answered? Um. One of the questions that was answered or that was asked was, um, is is um, interseeding a legume into a corn crop? Let me let me get to the question. I want to get this right. Is an interseeded legume able to feed a corn plant and itself at the same time? Is that biologically driven instead of corn pulling in from the legume? Uh, depends what legume we have in there and, and everything because and it's going to depend on how we're managing that corn crop because if that legume is short we're not going to get enough solar radiation down to that legume crop to really efficiently drive the photosynthetic process right. because we still got to have that sugar going on that that rhizobium is dependent on the energy source coming down to it to be able to fix the nitrogen uh, yeah. And, you know, and then it then will release it back out and is still stirring that microbial activity. I think we need a lot of discussion about that. It's not a simple thing of saying, so do you, do you space out that corn a little wider uh, and, and capture light differently? Uh, you know, I, I think it, it, there's so many caveats that go with that uh, from all the different pieces of that puzzle. So 
and and everything it's it's not a simple <laughs> question yeah. in terms of, of these dynamics but it's worth thinking about you yeah. know you you look at going back to a lot of the uh the subsistence agriculture what do they do they're producing a uh an interseeding they've got a legume and a, and a cash grain crop together you know both of them they're using yeah and, and how do they manage that system so maybe we need to uh, look at uh, what's happening in lots of different ways and how we can drive this process and understand it. Yeah. Rick, you got any closing thoughts there? No, I, I enjoyed the conversation. And uh, I think, uh, and again, I would reiterate, we, we have the tools and we have enough understanding to be dangerous in a positive way yeah. <laughs> and not just be dangerous in a bad way. And I, and, and I feel pretty good about the future as far as what we can do where we can go and how that we will have the ability in the next few years to to really help farmers become more profitable more educated more uh aware of what their soil is and how important a resource it is i think education is still the key right yeah. now but and if, if if we have to have to stumble into using carbon markers to further regenerative agriculture so be it yeah yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I I think that's that's a means to an end. Yeah, uh, I I think echoing a little bit of what Rick is saying, and I'll, I'll put a, a bow on it uh, for you is that I think that we are on we have tools, and not only tools that measure, but tools that can integrate data. I mean, you you talk about some of the AI techniques, artificial intelligence, machine learning. We haven't even talked about the utilization of remote sensing uh, in being able to to look spatially across the field and saying how is how's that field behaving? And that becomes a virtual yield monitor and a virtual growth monitor. I think that we have technologies that we need to figure out how to use, and then we need to figure out how do we begin to apply that for the benefit of the agriculture. Uh, and and I think this. This is what drives a lot of us, is that we can revolutionize agriculture because we have a lot of tools at our hands that we are not even utilizing efficiently yet. And I think that's, that, that's what drives a lot of us. That's what keeps a lot of us excited every day. Uh, and I think those are opportunities for us. Yeah. Well, man, this has been a blast. I know we could go way longer here. <laughs> But we'll just have to have Jerry back on another time. But wow, guys, thank you so much. Um, this has been a great, a great session. And thank you for, for Rick Haney stepping in. Uh, Jerry, thanks. This has been great. Everybody, have a, have a great day, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Right. Thank you much.